This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. One of the areas of the U.S. economy hit very hard by the financial crisis in 2008 was the auto industry. Sales of new vehicles dropped significantly because people either didn't have the money to spend or they couldn't get the necessary credit for a car loan. Sales slumped to a low of $13.1 million that year and then $10.4 million in 2009. You also had General Motors and Chrysler filing for bankruptcy only to receive bailouts by the federal government. Bailouts that were very important to President Obama, but by some estimates, never fully repaid. The Treasury said that $79 billion was handed out and $70 billion returned. You also had the element of the government basically owning certain automakers. And then there was Ford, who didn't take any money from the TARP fund, but did from other sources. It's a part of history that the auto industry would probably like to forget, but will never be allowed to set aside. With more on this part of the story of the financial crisis, we're joined here in studio by John Paul McDuffie, management professor here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also director of the program on vehicle and mobility innovation here at Wharton and the Mac Institute. And also joining us on the phone, Paul Eisenstein, publisher and editor of the Detroit Bureau, the website that closely follows the auto industry. John Paul, great seeing you again. Thanks for coming in. Glad to be here. Great to have you uh, on the phone with us, Paul. Thank you, sir. Great to be with you. So, Paul, start with you. I mean, seemingly the big question about this part of the story of the financial crisis is whether or not the bailouts actually needed to occur. How, how do you res- How do you answer that question? I can't even imagine why somebody would ask that question, to be very honest with you. Uh, The alternative was the disappearance of two car companies, the the first and third largest American car company. If you would prefer to have a world in which basically the U.S. market was carved up by Toyota, Nissan, uh, BMW, Mercedes, and what have you, with Ford uh, struggling along, well, that's fine. But I think most people, most economists would have said uh, that losing those two car, car companies would have been a substantial hit and probably driven the country into a depression rather than a recession uh, because a potential spinoff could have been a million jobs. John Paul? Yeah, the, you know, the auto industry has so many multiplier effects. There's so many jobs related to it. And the issue of how important is it for a country to have its own car companies is certainly something that was discussed at the time. There were a few people who said, well, you know, Toyota and Honda already have so many plants here that if GM and Chrysler go out of business, the foreign companies will simply invest and they'll yeah. still be U.S. jobs and that kind of thing. Um, I think, you know, again, with the perhaps bias of a longtime auto industry observer, it would have taken a lot of competition out. It would have taken a lot of uh, national capacity and capability in manufacturing. It would have no doubt hurt the economy in all kinds of ways, if not just because of the profits and other benefits being repatriated to those foreign automakers. And I I think as I think back to that time, um, one of the things that I found most compelling as a student of the auto industry was the fact that the supply chain – uh, I thought was remarkably fragile at that time. And if all the suppliers dependent on GM and Chrysler, GM, Ford and Chrysler, had uh, suddenly had no business from GM and Chrysler, 
I think they would have gone out of business. And then Toyota and Honda and all the transplants would have been out of luck too. So I think it could have been a sort of domino effect collapse of the domestic industry as opposed to, oh, the foreign makers will simply waltz on and everything will be fine. And I think, Paul, when you think locally where you are, the, the obviously the city of Detroit is one that's trying to build itself back up right now. The impact of losing two automakers uh, on the country is one thing. On that region of the country is probably something totally different. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't even imagine what would happen or would have happened to Detroit had we seen those two companies go down. Uh, it would have affected the entire region. And uh, interestingly enough, it more or less overlapped with the beginning of the turnaround of the, the city of Detroit itself. As you know, right now, it's one of the biggest urban stories in the United yeah. States, a city that many were ready to let uh, let just fail, let disappear. Uh, you know, the last person out, please shut off the lights, uh, is now having an explosive rebirth. And that seems to be alongside the recovery of the Detroit automakers. What's important, by the way, I should stress here, is that Detroit's revival is not just having the auto companies doing well, but it's also uh, a case of uh, bringing in a lot of new companies, uh, getting diversified beyond the auto industry. Uh, So uh, it had to chart its own course, but it couldn't have done that with an auto industry that essentially saw two of the big three disappear. That being said, though, the the bailout obviously was a, a huge factor for uh, for everybody that was receiving funds one way or another, John Paul. And the idea from from going back in time and reading about this was initially, okay, part of this is to get you back up on your feet as a company, but also is we want you to invest in that next generation to start that process of, of building out what vehicles are going to be 20, 30 years down the road. Part of that's been done, but I don't know if – if truly the value that the automakers received has really played out into what I think Congress would have really liked to have seen with the auto industry at this point. We're still trying to figure out where we're going on autonomous. Obviously, the technology is building out there, uh, and it's still kind of a work in progress a decade later. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, the the I think the... Some of the trends like electric cars have been um, heralded several times as you know surging towards a tipping point and then we've discovered it hasn't been a tipping point. Um, I think that story is so tangled up in the issue of what consumers are willing to spend uh, or their willingness to buy electric cars. That's tied to availability of charging infrastructure and the like. Um, some of the steps forward that we have seen out of Detroit uh, that are pretty impressive vehicles like the the Chevy Bolt out of GM, uh, which really is a, a, a cut above uh, pretty much any of the electric vehicles that have come out of companies other than uh, Tesla, we might say. Um, I think, you know, got a jump start from the policy changes from the the other sorts of conditions that accompany the, the bankruptcy. I mean, you know, there was a piece of it that was getting out of a crisis. There was a piece of it seen as opportunity to nudge these companies towards some new kinds of uh, behavior. I wanted to mention one thing that's related to to timing. Um, Paul was talking about the recovery of Detroit. You know, many critics of the bailout said 
uh, look, the auto companies uh, were badly managed for a long time. GM lost market share for 30 years. These energy crises would happen and there were no fuel-efficient vehicles being made by the big three sort of over and over again. But again, from the perspective of following the industry closely, I would say that by the time of the financial crisis, in terms of manufacturing capability, product development, supply chain management, the U.S. companies were better, stronger, performing at uh, you know pretty close to comparable to any global manufacturer in an awful lot of those areas by then. So back it up 10 years to the late 90s, back it up another 10 years to the late 80s, the simple competitiveness of the U.S. companies would have looked pretty bad. By mm-hmm. 2008, it was looking pretty good. And so, yeah. again, uh, in the middle of an improvement trajectory to kind of cut it short for, let's face it, the financial crisis cut auto sales worldwide by about 40%. Yeah. And they weren't involved in the financial crisis. Yeah. So what business in expensive capital-intensive durable goods takes a hit of 40% and isn't in a kind of crisis? Uh, I think it was easy – to my mind, not to think of this as you're bailing out a company that's uncompetitive and behaving badly and more you're investing in a super important part of this country's manufacturing capability for companies that are already on an impressive improvement trajectory. Paul, I'll let you answer, yeah. answer that. But I also want to touch on – have you touched on also the fact – I mean we talk about the auto industry and the automakers, but it was also the lenders as well. You know, Ford Credit, GMAC, these are the companies that were the, you know, the ones that were loaning this money to consumers so they could buy vehicles. And obviously the, the change in credit standards and, and the allowing uh, – uh, financing to go out changed and, and obviously hurt the auto industry as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Let me let me deal with that in a moment. Uh, I, I agree that the automakers had made major improvements in their business model by 2008, and it was I think frustrating to a lot of folks, feeling like they had hammered out a very different sort of uh, approach to to the car business. They were getting it right yeah. uh, in many ways. But they were saddled with a lot of debt, uh, and they were hammered by a crisis that was not anywhere near their own makings with an asterisk. I have to say that GM, its captive finance subsidiary, GMAC, also became a player in the, uh, in the mortgage market, yep. and it also suffered some intense losses because of that. So GM did have at least a little bit of a role in in the uh, overall downturn, but not nowhere near the big banks of Wall Street, and Ford was even much less of a player. Uh, they needed to get they needed to get a bailout to help them get get uh, rid of a lot of debt, uh, much of it not of their own making, uh, and, and to compensate for the the crisis that was created by Wall Street. Uh, you know, I, I find it fascinating that people were out there screaming about bailouts for Detroit, and yet they seem to accept as just inevitable that we should be bailing out the banks of Wall Street. And I don't get that at all. I think that was as much political as it was any real sense of understanding of what was going on. Um, and uh, the, the automakers, they certainly needed help with their captive finance. I, uh, the fact is, in this particularly screwy auto industry that we, we have these days, in many cases, automakers and their dealers make more money from financing than they do on the new cars. 
John Paul? Yeah, I mean, I, reflecting on this, I was uh, thinking of the, you know, the backlash in a way from the financial crisis and the various bailouts uh, has manifested in a lot of political anger that is was directed certainly at first at the at the financial institutions that did contribute a lot to the financial crisis and and took uh, you know little, little penalty uh, and. Um, Eventually, that led to some backlash against government even providing these bailouts. I just think of all the populism that's been unleashed in this period, uh, much of it focused on the parts of the country that were left behind in boom times, the mm -hmm. loss of manufacturing high-paying jobs in a lot of the you know manufacturing middle of the country belt. And try to imagine how much worse the negative fallout for certain parts of the country would have been if those who said let GM and Chrysler go bankrupt had gotten their way, um, I think we would have seen even more of a sense of anger and our problems are not being given the you know support and the attention they deserve, whereas the you know the the coastal elites, the big banks, all of this are getting bailed out much more quickly. So, um, I mean, it was a, a, a rare moment in sort of industrial policy of the last X years of really deciding that manufacturing mattered enough to make this kind of unconventional big yeah. investment. Which is interesting because when you look now several years past the financial crisis and where manufacturing in general has gone, obviously auto is a component of that, we've seen a significant dip. A decline in manufacturing jobs. We're seeing maybe a little bit of a recovery on it, but not even close to where we were 10, 15, 20 years ago with manufacturing. And to a degree, it's the same with the auto industry. We saw jobs come back, but then they have leveled off. And, and you know, it's, it's an interesting industry to watch right now because of a lot of these factors. Yeah. In terms of the actual manufacturing of the product, some of the same economic forces, globalization forces, have continued to move manufacturing to lower labor cost areas yeah. and, and the like. And we're seeing, you know, some of the complexities of the the global supply chain in all the renegotiation of renegotiation of NAFTA now. Um, this is back to a little bit of the the rebirth of Detroit. Um, I know some researchers who've done a careful look at Detroit as a uh, Detroit area, metropolitan area, even including over the border a bit into um, into the parts of Canada that do a lot of auto industry stuff, as a source of patents and other sources of new innovations, uh, that area now uh, greatly exceeds a lot of other parts of the country, even in other technologies like high tech. And the patents are either within that extended region or they are co-authored patents with other auto hubs in you know, Stuttgart or in Tokyo mm -hmm. or yep. in other parts of the world. And so it may be true that Detroit and the U.S. shrunk as a manufacturing base, but as a home for the global auto industry, the Detroit area now has headquarters from pretty much every big automaker and big supplier all over the world. Yep. And there's a tremendous amount of the next phase of technological advance that's being propelled both from there and, of course, from Silicon Valley. Paul? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. When you come here, you'll find that uh, you, first of all, have every automaker from around the world has at least some sort of setup here. Even even some of the uh, 
Chinese companies that, uh, that may never come here yeah. have some form of operation uh, here because of the technology. Uh, there, was a, there was a period when all the automakers said how important it was to set up operations in California. So you'll find that most automakers have a design studio somewhere in the L.A. or San Francisco area, and they're likely to have some sort of operation in Silicon Valley for their technology. But it's flipping around. You're now starting to see some some of the Silicon Valley operations uh, partner up with the Detroit manufacturers and others and set up high-tech ventures here in the Detroit area. Uh, you have a lot of uh, a lot of R and D facilities all over the region. Toyota operates some of its biggest R and D facilities. They have a, they have a big proving grounds, including a big test track just outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan. So there's a huge amount of automotive based here in the Detroit area. Uh, what you oddly enough don't see as much anymore of here around Detroit is manufacturing. Uh, you've yeah. seen that spread out across the United States, across North America, and, of course, around the world. Uh, but you're seeing a lot more come into the United States. Uh, the number of plants that Toyota operates is, what, now over a dozen assembly plants or major parts like engines. Uh, they're ready to open up a new one in a couple years. They're going to yeah. be opening a joint venture facility down south. Uh, with Mazda, for example. So while globalization has hurt the auto industry more generally, let's get away from just the big three, but the auto industry as a whole, yeah. it has helped the U.S. to gain a lot of foreign manufacturing. You're seeing a lot of companies, uh, startups, in many cases funded by the Chinese, setting up operations. Uh, There's going to be probably a number of electric car plants out west right. in not that many years, operated not just by Tesla, but by Biden, uh, by Faraday Future, which seems to be making a comeback after running into financial problems and so on. Uh, Globalization actually can help. Here's here's a little tidbit for you. Uh, who do you think? Let me ask you this, Dan. Yeah. Who do you think is the number one automotive exporter from the United States? I'm talking fully assembled vehicles. I'm going to guess it's probably not one of the big three. You're right. How about Toyota? Nope, BMW. BMW. Oh, okay. That was going to be that, my guess. <laughs> only because and, they uh, make then, so their SUV line here, right? And they only here, so right. they have to sell it. That's true. Through export. That's right. That's right. Right. Yeah. So what happens is with globalization, many automakers, uh, first of all, automakers try to build where they sell when possible. Sure. Yeah. There are some exceptions. Uh, in some cases, it makes sense to have regional operations uh, that <clears throat> excuse me, act as world centers. Uh, for specific products, and that works very well in, in SUVs, for example, and sometimes sports cars and the yeah. like. So uh, BMW ships, for example, the X5 and soon the X7 uh, overseas. Now, here's the great irony. Uh, Donald Trump's trade war with China and possibly with the rest of the world may force BMW to start moving some of the production overseas. Yeah. Uh, Ford, which is, I believe, the number three exporter, will uh, has already cut production of some of the products like the Mustang that it was shipping from the U.S. to China and other parts of the world. So uh, we're already seeing the potential that the Trump trade war may, in fact, hurt the U.S. as an exporter and cut 
U.S. auto jobs. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on uh, Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School in studio with uh, John Paul McDuffie of the Wharton School and on the phone with Paul Eisenstein of the DetroitBureau.com. So, I mean, let me ask you for a second about about leadership uh, of these companies, because when you think about the leadership that was there during this time, and obviously, as you said, John Paul, they had to deal with a lot of things, not necessarily their own doing, but they obviously had to get their companies, try and get their companies through the through all this trouble. Now you have people like Mary Barra and up until recently Sergio Marchione running uh, running Chrysler and Fiat. My question is, do you think that that the companies, the automakers today, are more prepared? Because we know at some point there will be another recession. So I guess the question is, do you think the auto industry is more prepared now to deal with the impact of another recession, having gone through such a, a tumultuous time a decade ago? Uh, well, let me start by speaking to the issue of the quality of the leadership, which obviously yeah. should have a bearing on that. Yeah. Um, I do think that looking back, we may feel like this was one of the most positive uh, impacts on both GM and Chrysler. Uh, and of course, we don't have the counterfactual to play if Rick Wagner had been left in place, sure. you know, with the bailout money, given some of the good things that were happening. But I have to say that Rick Wagner, as the CEO of GM, who was fired during the bailout, yep. um, in many ways had continued a legacy of GM being heavily focused on market share, pushing production at all costs, even if it went a lot of uh, cars put into rental fleets and the like. Um, Mary Barra is an insider. She was not immediately the new CEO at GM, but she followed two outside CEOs, yep. both from the tech industry. Uh, but she is a tremendously impressive leader who has brought about a lot of, I think, very valuable changes at GM that will help them in a future recession. Uh, she has allowed GM to get smaller. She's had them be more focused on profitability and not just volume. Some of the product innovation that's happened has been very impressive, and she came up through all those jobs. She was head of worldwide yep. manufacturing, head of worldwide product development, et cetera. And then in Chrysler, it created this opening for Sergio Marchione, who you know is a, a very singular talent. And uh, if you read the accounts of the auto bailout from um, Steve Ratner and others who were involved on the government side, Steve Ratner is a, a financier, yep. but who was brought in. He says, basically, we were on the fence about whether or not to save Chrysler, and we decided that Sergio was the reason that it was worth it. We were betting on him and his yeah. leadership ability to um, turn it around. And, of course, uh, Fiat Chrysler is not the strongest of all auto companies, but what has been accomplished since then has been um, pretty remarkable. And I think a lot of people figured Chrysler would be long gone by now, yeah. so that would have been a wasted investment. So – the upgrading of the quality of the leadership, the shock to those organizations that they had to change some of the things that had just continued for a very long time, uh, I think will, uh, will it, with the, uh, the benefit of the hindsight of history, look uh, pretty positive. Paul? Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting when you look back at how dramatic the changes were. Now, going into the recession, Ford it either was incredibly prescient or incredibly lucky. Yeah. Probably a bit of both. It lined up a lot of money before. It lined up huge credit lines just before the the recession. Really, here, a depression hit. And that carried it through. It was able to get through without having to go through the bankruptcy process. 
And by the way, one of the reasons it didn't want to go through the bankruptcy process and it was willing to keep some of the debt on its books that it could have otherwise wiped out was because it almost certainly would have emerged as a very different company with the Ford family no longer having yeah. a controlling stake. And that was something the Fords did not want to deal with. And I'll get back to Ford in a moment because that's a that's an interesting issue about leadership. Uh, yes, Mr. Marchione was the reason that Chrysler was bailed out. Uh, President Obama himself said that he was reluctant to give it the bailout it needed to survive unless it had a white knight. Along came Fiat. And uh, Mr. Marchione was far from done by the time he passed away, what, just two months ago. Uh, so we still have a lot of questions about what will happen to FCA long term. Uh, they're downplaying, oddly enough, they're downplaying the two companies that give the company its name. Uh, the two brands, Fiat and Chrysler, are all but disappearing. So that is still a very, very serious company in transition. And we will have to see what the new CEO, uh, Michael Manley, who's headed the very successful Jeep division, will yeah. be able to do as a successor to Marchione. GM Mary Barra is a change agent who grew up inside, and that's so unusual because GM seemed to develop Me Too type of leaders that just didn't make many changes. Yeah. Uh, she has done some dramatic things. Uh, this was the world's largest car company, and she has not just been willing to accept the position as number two or three, but she has walked out of key markets. She sold off. GM's European operations yep. closed their retail market in India and Russia and South Africa and so on. Uh, so she is very willing to do things that mean a smaller company, but a more profitable one. As to getting back to Ford, uh, you had Alan Mulally, the Boeing executive, come in and shake up the very foundation of a corporate culture that was totally dysfunctional. Yeah. Unfortunately, his chosen successor, uh, Mark Fields, did not seem to just make it work. And he was replaced, as you know, in May of last year. The question is what's going to happen with Jim Hackett, the former football player, uh, come uh, CEO of Steelcase, the furniture company. Uh, his early tenure is not going very well right now. It's very controversial. The stock is approaching a six-year low, and a lot of people are wondering whether yeah. he is going to be able to position the company to, to succeed. It's uncertain if they're not going to need another shakeup there. Great having you both with us to look back at uh, the auto industry during this uh, period of time. And, and to look ahead as well. Uh, Paul, thanks very much for joining us from Detroit. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you, sir. John Paul, as always, great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.